This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. Any home or business can quickly become infested with mold with the introduction of a water source like a roof or plumbing leak. When your home, your belongings, or your business becomes damaged, it's not just about cleaning up the mess. It's about reclaiming your life. And that's why you need to call the Water and Mold Removal Hotline. A licensed, fully insured, affordable, non-invasive solution to solving any water and mold problems. Our team of trained specialists are available with 24-7 emergency service. We will quickly evaluate your problem and give you a plan that will guarantee results. Water causes damage and mold can spread throughout your property in as little as 48 to 72 hours and can produce allergens and irritants that have the potential to cause serious health hazards. So don't waste time. Give us a call now. For any water or mold problems, call the Water and Mold Removal Hotline. Call 800-442-7043 today for a free estimate. That's 800-442-7043. 800-442-7043. Spreading freedom across the nation. This is the Buck Sexton Show. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show. Charlie Harari here, filling in for Buck. Oh, what an honor to be back. In front of Team Buck, man, I miss this. I miss this. I had the opportunity to film for Buck a few months ago. This, you guys are the best. You guys are the best audience and the best the listeners out there. And so it's an honor to be back with you. It's an honor to be able to spend a couple of minutes today with Team Buck, especially a day like today, March first. And I feel like it's like the beginning of something new, don't you? I, I do. I mean, I felt. I feel like if you look back at the year and all this presidential roller coaster stuff and all that we've gone through. There are like moments that shift the course of American history. And I don't mean to be too dramatic here, but I really believe that what I saw last night, I'm hoping, is a shift in a direction that would really mark the Trump administration and a lot of the policies that he's going to be able to bring forth. And I want to talk a little bit about the show, the the speech last night. Obviously, today's show is going to be about the speech, but we're going to do something a little different for those that are joining us. Just to give you a little update as to what we're going to be accomplishing today, we're going to be delving into the speech, dissecting it, but from different perspectives and different angles. We're going to talk about it from its style. We're going to talk about it from its substance. We actually have someone coming on the show in about a half an hour who predicted Trump's win years earlier because he had access to a book that actually laid out the entire strategy before anybody knew it. You're going to hear this. This is incredible. It's coming up a little later on in the show today. We're actually going to spend a little bit of time talking about some of the moves that Donald Trump made throughout his speech and why it resonated. Because when you walk away from a speech like that, there's two levels that you can hear it in. There's this sort of obvious policy level and talk about what he said and what that's going to mean for the infrastructure and for taxes and for health care and for immigration. And we'll have that conversation and we'll talk through some of those points now. But there's another way to walk away from a speech like that and ask ourselves, okay, well, what are the lessons that are within this stuff? How does this apply to my life, not just from a policy perspective, but from a 
practical, personal perspective. What, what have I heard last night? What can I learn from last night's speech that may be helpful to me in my own personal life and how I present in front of my peers and how I deal with things and how I can get through the challenge of, of my life? And so that's what we're going to accomplish today on the show. Hope you stick with me. Uh, it's an honor really to sit in for Buck and hope that you're with me for the next two hours as we sort of delve into every single angle of the speech. And I want to jump in right away and talk about how important this speech was in general because where the Trump president, presidency was going, I think, before last night was into a world of just no return. At some point when you're the president of the United States and there are factions that hang around you and make decisions about your competence and make decisions decisions about who you are and what you believe in at some point there's a point of no return i think barack obama hit that point and for those that were listening to various parts of the media you'll see that as his presidency sort of carried on there was nothing that he could do that was good in the eyes of many and it was because after year and year and year of hearing him people started to think that he was just his way. He was too myopic. He was too self-focused. He was too self-absorbed. And as a result, when something came out, they questioned his words. And when you start a presidency, everyone sort of gives you that benefit of the doubt. Usually there's a bump. Donald didn't get much of that bump, but usually there's a bump. And almost, I think, for the first time we've ever seen in modern history, that bump was not only short, but it was short-lived. And the world sort of started to gang around Donald Trump and decided that he was really not going to be a great president, that he's not my president, marches, and the approval ratings that were sort of at a constant negative. And when you are trying to run an administration like that, it never really goes. You can't possibly do anything, especially at a level and a scale that large. If every time you do something, most people think you're doing it incorrectly or you have sinister reasons for why you do something and pictures of Bannon as the modern-day Cromwell and pictures of Donald Trump being out of touch and you know having no heart all start to get into the mind of the American public and at some point it becomes over and what Donald Trump did last night was show us a few things first of first and foremost before we get into the actual specifics of what he went through 40 to 45 million people tuned in. And when he walked in and the crowd erupted and when he got up there, I got to tell you, I, as you know, for those who are listening to me, I wasn't a Donald Trump guy from the beginning. But I'm, a, I'm an American guy. And I'm going to respect the office of the president. Give them the benefit of the doubt guy. And let's see how this administration comes through and what happens. But the one thing that I will say is that the ability for the American public, and what makes us the greatest nation in the world, I believe, by far, is the level of respect we have for the office. Is the ability for people that disagree with him. And they did all that, all the stunts, the white stuff. They're all wearing white and they're not standing up and they're not clapping. And some people didn't even clap for the Navy SEAL, which is ridiculous. And there was a lot of that. But at the foremost, just at, at, at the surface, to be able to have a nation divided sit in one chamber and listen to the president speak and to clap or stand for him. That is the backbone of how our democracy works. That is the backbone of how our companies and our families and our religious denominations should work. 
there is a certain modicum of respect. Now, I'm not saying it's going to last five minutes after the chamber, but at least we have to sort of be grateful for what we saw last night. And what Donald Trump did last night in his speech, I thought was masterful. And of course, you'll always have people saying that it's this and he's reading off, you know, something that a college student or whatever the stuff that people were saying last night. I thought by and large, the response was overwhelmingly positive from the left and the right. And the reason why it was so good was because he did a few things really well. Some of them were just public speaking 101, which we're going to get to in the back end of the show. Public speaking is the number one fear in America, right? Number two is what? You know, it's death, right? That means that if you're at a funeral, most people would rather be in the casket than doing the eulogy. And last night, he used a couple of really interesting techniques that I'm going to share with you on the back end of the show. And you can just immediately use whenever next time you get to use a presentation or wherever that is. But what he did last night, which I thought was so good, was how he couched his policy. Right? He came on with the understanding that he was trying to soften. That was the goal. He had a tumultuous first 40 days. He was getting criticized from every which way. And his goal was really to steer, if you will, this divided nation and a president with historic low approval ratings by basically pleading with the American people to give him a chance and explaining why he does what he does. And if you notice throughout the speech, and I'm sure you can just Google right now and get the whole speech in like two minutes. Don't you love the internet, by the way? Don't you love that? Like, in the old days, you had to watch the speech, right? Now, you get to not only not watch the speech, and if you missed it, YouTube it in the morning. Forget that. You get to watch the speech in three minutes, in two minutes, in one minute, and they just cut the clips. So I, I, I advise you to do so. But what he did was, throughout the speech, was he kept his key pieces to his policy in place, right? His, his policy, his, his efforts against, you know, radical Islamic terrorism, ISIS, right? He spoke about the travel ban and in doing so really spoke to the compassionate argument. People are, are accusing him of being heartless and he tried to sort of steer it and to flip it and to speak about compassion not from a perspective of the immigrants coming in in these particular nations and the potential terrorism and the inability to vet them from where they're coming from, but for the people of our country, right? He spoke about trade. And when he spoke about trade, which I, 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 could, I, I, I couldn't believe it, he, he, he quoted Abraham Lincoln, right, who warned that the abandonment of the protective policy by the American government will produce want and ruin among our people. Right? The idea that we're going to be kind to everybody else but our family, that's part and parcel of the Judeo-Christian ethic in which this country is founded on. Moral principles demand us to take care of our family first. You're not a righteous person because you can give out alms to the poor, the strangers, while your kids are starving. But the shift, the spin, the frame of the trade policies that he's looking at to protect the worker, of the use of steel, right, of the infrastructure that he's trying to build and why the trillion dollar plan that he's trying to put together 
is going to jumpstart a lot of the jobs and rebuild this country. I got to tell you, when he said to when he said in the speech, we're spending all this time rebuilding the world, and what about ourselves? I said to myself, you know what? He's not wrong, right? I live in New York City. Our airports are, I wouldn't say top of the line, the infrastructure, the buildings. And so what was going on throughout this entire speech was a real stick to the principles. Tax reform, right? Middle, middle class relief. The wall, right? At some point he turned around and he said, ask yourself the question, how are you going to answer someone who loses their jobs because we can't defend our border? Right? And each and every one of his policies, what he was doing was responding to much of the criticism that he got along the way. But here are some of the small things that may have been missed. Along the way, he threw a couple of bones. Right? If you noticed, he spoke about paid family leaves. And what he did, that's a long-held Democratic Party priority. Right? And so when he said that, it became very hard for the liberal lawmakers to not jump up and clap. Right? His, his working with Muslims, his mentioning, which I think was appropriate, Muslims that are also getting killed by terrorism, softened a little bit of the blows of his racism or his claim. People claim that he is. Right? His increase in military spending, although that is mo most definitely right on that list of what he is um, known for in his policies, you notice that, you know, that's right down the fairway for one of his fiercest critics, Senator John McCain. And so along the way, what he did was continuously build the reasons for his policies, frame the criticism, send in a few of these olive branches across the aisle, which makes it harder and harder for the people afterwards or during to not be part of. And what we saw last night was something that I think is something that we can take into each and every one of our lives, which is lots of times in life you start off with the wrong footing, right? You start off and you're ambitious and you think it's your way and you get running on things and along the way you break things, you offend people. But to have the time and the ability and the opportunity to be able to pull back and to explain and to frame and to hear what people are saying against you and to include it into the reasons for why you're doing it, just being able to articulate something actually changes how people respond to you and how people respond to it. And if you notice afterwards, this is amazing, is you can literally see from the entire press what people are saying, right? You know, Anderson Cooper, this is probably without doubt one of the best speeches I've ever heard. Right, one of his best speeches. I mean, even it gets harder and harder. I, mean, I know MSNBC had a whole thing with uh, the Kentucky governor, which we'll talk about when we come back from the break. But it's an amazing thing, just what happens. You can explain. We come back. We're going to talk about what M what, what MSNBC tried to do, how that how that didn't work, and speak a little bit about just what it is that one needs to do to become more effective. This is Charlie Harari filling in for Buck Sexton, and you're listening to the Buck Sexton Show. Buck Sexton, the Blaze Radio Network.
Any home or business can quickly become infested with mold with the introduction of a water source, like a roof or plumbing leak. When your home, your belongings, or your business becomes damaged, it's not just about cleaning up the mess. It's about reclaiming your life, and that's why you need to call the Water and Mold Removal Hotline, a licensed, fully insured, affordable, non-invasive solution to solving any water and mold problems. Our team of trained specialists are available with 24-7 emergency service. We will quickly evaluate your problem and give you a plan that will guarantee results. Water causes damage and mold can spread throughout your property in as little as 48 to 72 hours and can produce allergens and irritants that have the potential to cause serious health hazards. So don't waste time. Give us a call now. For any water or mold problems, call the Water and Mold Removal Hotline. Call 800-442-7043 today for a free estimate. That's 800-442-7043. 800-442-7043. You're listening to the Buck Sexton Show. And welcome back to the show. Charlie Harari filling in for Buck Sexton. Hope everyone's doing well. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show. Excited about what I heard last night in Trump's speech. Excited for the tone that he's using and excited for the fact that he tries and is trying to unify the country behind his vision. And I think that's the most important thing right now. I think if you're looking at what people were saying when they left was this moderateness, this lack of extremism in his articulation. Because that's what happens sometimes in life. You have ideas and you think it's your way and the world pushes you back. And in pushing you back, you do one of two things. Either you harden yourself and say everybody's off and everybody's wrong. I don't need to explain myself. Anyone have a bosses like this? Anybody have a boss that says to you, hey, by the way, it's my way or the highway? Anyone have parents like this? Does anybody parent their children like this? I don't need to explain myself to you. I'm your father. You get this? Well, that's not how leadership works. And where the Trump administration was heading towards before last night, I would say, is this world of we'll do it our way and we'll go a million miles an hour and we may hurt some people along the way and either hold on for the ride or have fun watching from the sidelines especially recently with this whole media stuff and not inviting certain media outlets and the panic and the pandemonium of the media saying I'm not invited to enough stuff. But what last night tried to do, and I hope it continues, and I don't think for one second that he went deep into policy. I, I agree, like I believe like most people, I think that it was a little, little light on the specifics, but it wasn't meant to be more specific, right? It was a it was a national address in 40, 45 million people. It was supposed to be lofty. It was supposed to be more visionary. And there were pieces of it that I may have particularly disagreed with. But the idea that he got up there and he reframed and he set a vision and he asked for the time. And he almost felt a little more humble, if I can use that word with Donald Trump, was very encouraging to me. And you can see from the reaction that people had afterwards just how hard it was for the usuals to come against it. In fact, MSNBC had something where they had Stephen Bashir, who was this former Kentucky governor, basically sitting in this, looked like a diner with a whole bunch of people, totally staged, stunty, even per, you know, Rachel Maddow, saying he, it was reckless and it was terrible. And even when the panel responded to seeing that they were like, oh, stop. Like, come on. Like, seriously? You guys, it, it just it just comes across so partisan that whatever he says is going to be terrible. 
And you see even the responses today, this the terribleness. And, and what happens is sometimes when someone else has their moment, it's hard for somebody else to even acknowledge that moment. And Donald Trump has and will have, I'm guaranteeing, plenty of difficult moments as a leader. There's plenty of times where this nation is going to scratch their heads and go, really? But this last night wasn't one of them. So, you know, as, as an American, you got to pull back and go, you know what? Let's give it to him. Let's just give him one night where he got the right speech written. And he said it right, and he seemed somewhat genuine and sincere. And he delivered something that the nation may not necessarily agree on, but can get behind. And there's enough in there, I think, for the nation to get behind, even if they may disagree on a lot of the practicalness and the practicalities of how this gets done. And he delivered that. And I think it's important for us to think through that, by the way. And a lot of what you're going to hear from me in the show, and what you hear from me in general, is what does this mean for me personally? And what it means for you personally is that many times in life you have ideas and you have directives and initiatives and missions. You're in charge of something or someone or you're working with something or somebody and they don't necessarily agree with you. And it takes a really big person to pull back and explain. We come back. We're actually going to be talking to Jake Novak, an individual, a political commentator at a CNBC who got a book about five years ago and has used that book to be his blueprint for how he predicted Donald Trump's election and how he is predicting what will be the drivers of the Trump administration, all from a book that he received from of a particular author a little bit a little while ago. It's all coming up with Jake Novak. You're listening to the Buck Sex. So this is Charlie Harari filling in for Buck on the Blaze Radio Network. Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. Buck Sexton, the Blaze Radio Network. And welcome back to the show, everybody. Charlie Harari filling in for Buck. Hope everyone's doing well. Hope everyone's having an enjoyable March 1st as we head ourselves into spring last night. Donald Trump delivered, I thought, a knockout. I think people around the country may have agreed. We have on the line right now an individual who has been on the show with me before, mostly because he was predicting Donald Trump to win, and everyone thought he was crazy. Uh, Jake Novak, political commentator, was saying for months that we're missing it. This story is not whether or not he offends this person or that person, or whether he's politically correct or not correct. Things are not going to take him off message, and he's going to win, and everybody thought he was nuts. And he was right. Jake, welcome to the show. Thank you. I I still might be crazy, even though I was right, though. We should make sure that everyone knows that. Right, right. Let's make sure that's a clarified point. Right, exactly. So so recently we had this conversation. I know that you have this op-ed on CNBC, and I would, uh, I'll tweet this out to everybody. And you know, if you're Googling it, Google the op-ed, Jake Novak, CNBC. It's not the art of the deal. You have this, you have this op-ed out there that I, was, I, I have absolutely loved. And in it you say that there's a book that you got in 2012 that gave you the blueprint that, was, that, that 
enabled you to predict Trump's victory and you think is going to be how he's going to you know, basically govern his administration. What is that? Yeah, it's like a secret book. It's called The People's Money. It's by Scott Rasmussen, and that name might ring a bell to folks who follow the polls. He, he is the founder of Rasmussen Reports, although we should say he, he actually hasn't been connected to Rasmussen Reports. He left, although they kept his name, he left uh, almost four years ago. Um, but he does have a lifetime of polling. Uh, he's also an entrepreneur. He's by one of the co-creators of ESPN, by the way, which a lot of people don't know. Um, oh. But he has a tremendous amount of experience both in the real private sector world and then in this polling world where he really got to know voters and things that voters want and not coming in with a lot of any presupposed notions, just really hearing them and listening to them in a way that a politician doesn't always do because politicians are trying to mold the conversation and, and Scott was just trying to listen to them. And the people's money, which uh, I actually got a chance to look at it in 2011 because he personally handed me the pre-published galleys uh, at a meeting I had at, at, with him. And he makes the, the strong case that the American public really dislikes politicians, really dislikes the political class. And this might not sound like anything you don't know when, you, when I say it that way, but he really gets into the details of how much that dislike is there, how much that distrust is there, and how both sides really don't understand each other. And when you read that book and you reread it, you see how clearly the need for a candidate like Trump was out there and how easily he was the guy to win. And um, going forward, it's so much easier to understand his policy choices and the things that he's pushing for now. Also, with that book, you know, as your knowledge, you take that into context. So let's, let's take a step back and think about some of the big things he spoke about last night, immigration, yep. taxes. Um, infrastructure. So what are the areas in particular that you know, the, the nation feels strongly about that the politicians may have missed? Well, and this comes in with immigration, too. You mentioned infrastructure. The, the nation is, uh, the people in general have long believed that the politicians' priorities are not the people's priorities. So when the politicians and their compliant uh, collaborators, for lack of a better word, in, in most of the news media, tell you that illegal immigration isn't a problem. The public doesn't believe it. The public has its own personal experiences with this that say that's not true. And in some cases, they just have that feeling that it's not true. They feel like the government is t telling them this because, well, they like the illegal immigrants who eventually become legal and vote for them. They like the corporate donors who take advantage of the low-cost labor. And, and that's a, a big example of why you know, Trump continues to mention this and continues to use this issue and doesn't come up with a big compromise like some people were reporting he was going to do last night. And that's it's one of the illegal immigration is a great example where the political class and the people diverge. On infrastructure, it's the same thing. You know, people, and this includes a lot of people from the left, which really gives Trump a unique uh, appeal to non-Republicans. They believe that the wars that we fought, especially in Iraq and Afghanistan and the way that they've been carried out, were not completely necessary. And that things like infrastructure were uh, neglected in favor of that kind of spending, which is why it was so brilliant for Trump to connect it to. He never mentioned, I don't think he mentioned infrastructure once over the last couple of days without connecting it to the foreign wars. I mean, I hope you noticed that. That's a really smart thing to do because it's exactly one of the things that the political class doesn't really get about the American people. Every time we spend money in a war, it's not only about life and death, it's also about, hey, you know, this road doesn't work. Because... Infrastructure is a war. Fighting a war is a lot like an infrastructure project. You know, there, there, there's road paving. <laughs> Literally, there are there is things like road paving right. and build bridge and bridge building and wars. So those things kind of get connected in in the public's mind. Right, and once you go someplace, you can't just get up and leave. Right, you got to maintain the bases. You got to be able yeah. to sort of create some level of infrastructure you're putting in. And he mentioned it yesterday in the speech. We're out there building the world, and what about ourselves? Right. And I, I wonder. I wonder if he's hitting on something. I mean. In, in your opinion here, is, is there a certain – we spoke in the beginning of the show a little bit about this concept of the point of no return, 
And mm. sometimes in, in, in through the tenure of an individual, of a president or of, of Congress, the, the public stops to trust them entirely. And mm. whatever they say, they just dismiss. Is right. that what you think is happening right now? Are we at a point right now where the American public says, just take an instrument and beat up the political class? Like every yep. time we see Donald Trump, every, every time we see people sitting around and crying about him and, and you watch sort of cable news and you think like, oh, my God, it's terrible. Everybody's against him. Is the rest of the nation going, what, 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 what? who cares? Like, this is ridiculous. Just continue. Just get out the chainsaw and like, just let's just let's just start from scratch and let's just sort of replant here. Is that, is that what, what what's going on? Yeah, you hit on a very important point. You know, I know very, very, very few Trump supporters who absolutely adore the man. They don't adore him. They just, they feel like he, you, you, you said the words, they consider him a blunt instrument who's smashing a political class. They know that he's a little disgusting. They know he's a little rude. Maybe they don't want to have, do more than have a, a business dinner with him. He's not the guy. So they, you know, they would have a business dinner with him, but they wouldn't bring him home for Thanksgiving weekend. Uh, that is not true, I think, of a lot of people who adore within the political class. They look at each other adoringly and fawningly, which is why people didn't understand why. Gee, why didn't the rest of the country love Hillary Clinton like other people in the political class did? And the answer is because the rest of the country isn't the political class. We don't look at our politicians for that. We use our family members and maybe our, our rabbis or priests as people that we want to look up to in that way, not our politicians. And so that's why Trump's so perfect for that anti-political class movement, because they're not looking for another Obama or another person who was worshipped. They are looking for someone to do, to do a job. And um, that's very important to Trump. I think 30, 40 years ago, he couldn't have found a way into, into politics because I think people were a little bit more, weren't as frustrated as they are now. Right. And I, I wonder going forward, just how much of it do you think he is implementing? How much of what took place last night is grandstanding and is, you know, back off everybody and I, know, I have a plan I know what I'm doing I got a vision and I know exactly what's going on and how much of it really is him saying listen I'm going to start to unveil a lot a lot a lot of changes get ready well, it's a little bit of both. I mean, one of the things about the American political structure that isn't uh, a, a deception of the political class and isn't a bad thing is that the trend is your friend. You know, if you have a deficit of $100, you know, $100 billion in a particular program, and over the course of five or six years, you continue to whittle away at it. I mean, in real dollars, not in political class math, you know, which is kind of bogus. I mean, real, real money is actually starting to get saved then in some ways it's, it's just as good as actually getting that deficit down to zero because it encourages people to do more things in the private sector. They feel a little bit better about the economy. They do things. They go out and buy things. They do better things. So I think that's going to be a big part of the Trump story in the next four years. You know, he's going to get more individual companies to say they're hiring people. Will it make a huge dent in the macroeconomic monthly job or yearly job reports? Maybe not. But the more that we hear these stories of the trend being our friend, more companies thinking about hiring more here and there, you're going to end up with a thousand here, a few hundred there, dozens there of people who feel better, have a job, are more secure, and that will be infectious. Now, not, again, it may not, if you're an economist or a political class type who, who wants to look at these numbers and crunch them in big ways, maybe he won't make that, those big policy changes that you're talking about. But it doesn't matter. I think he's going to, to get the people to think in a more positive way with these little victories along the, along the way. That said, I do think he is going to have some big program stuff that he's going to implement, whether it's the tax cut, some form of an infrastructure plan. Again, because he doesn't really care about uh, running for office again or have family members who are doing that, and that was a big problem with the Bush family, I think, I think there will be at least one or two major programs that he does implement, and he will build some form of a wall. I mean, these things have to happen for him, and I think that he can get it done.
Right, and 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 that's a great point that you're making in terms of the trend. It's something that I think most most of us don't fully appreciate just how much momentum actually matters and yeah. what confidence means to the marketplace and what happens when you feel like the future is going to be bright and 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 borrowing and lending and and hiring and what that does for an overall economy. And I know that you're you're a busy guy. And I, I want to sort of just dive into one aspect before I let you go. And and this is an important, I think, part of what he said yesterday. And when you when you go back and you look at some of the economists and some of the business leaders sort of dissect his speech, some of the things that, that's coming up right now is this what they're finding is, you know, this desire to stimulate the economy, right? Tax cuts usually put money back in the pockets of the individual who spends it back into the economy, stimulating the growth. And then you have all the spending, right? So it's, in some ways, you've got sort of two sides of a coin. We're going to create a lot more spending, trillions of dollars that are going to go into the budget. We're building very expensive infrastructure, both internally and on the borders. And we're going to really spend, spend, spend. But at the same time, we're going to cut, cut, cut. And right. we're coming off, I know those the, the, the GDP numbers, I think, just came out. And we're coming off continuous, tepid growth. Yeah. So you've got almost like this interesting storm, right? We're not really growing that. You know, what Barack Obama left us from for an economy wasn't exactly a great economy. We're coming off that, and we may feel a pinch in, in you know in interest rates. And then you've got a president saying, "Hey, listen, guys, I'm going to cut, cut, cut. It's going to be amazing, but at the same time, we're going to spend a lot more money." How does that all sort of jive to you? Well, you know, Europe is a great example of this. You know, there was a whole austerity push in Europe a couple of years ago, and it didn't seem to work that much. You know, the idea of just cutting without spending or some kind of stimulus didn't seem like it was working very much for them. So I think Trump's trying to avoid that. He wants the austerity of cutting all these subdivisions within the, the departments, which, by the way, um, the book, The Political, you know, The People's Money really talks about how the people support that kind of stuff. They, they don't want to cut major departments completely, but they like killing individual programs all over the place. But if you only do that, you, you're right. You, you create a situation where people aren't necessarily positive. They're not thinking about the positive momentum in an economy, and it doesn't help grow the economy. You've got to have something that stimulates. Now, conservatives for years have said, well, cutting taxes will do that, and that'll be enough. But I don't think Trump buys that, and I don't think the people necessarily buy that. They want to see real action in some way. I don't think that Trump is going to be able to make a huge dent in balancing the budget, even if he cuts and we get a lot more growth. It's, still, it's just it's something we can't grow our way out of, and, and we can cut our way out of it, but it's going to take bigger cuts than even Trump wants. But this is the point that you're making. You've got to have a positive attitude in the country. Nothing is going to be done if people feel like things are getting worse. You know, a great example is crime. Crime is still at historically low levels, but it's up over, you know, in certain cities like Chicago, it's, it's higher than it was the year before. So even though it's down compared to what it was 30 or 40 years ago, it doesn't matter. People see a negative trend and it gets people very upset. So a positive trend can be infectious, can, can make some positive things. Again, I just don't, if you're looking for the, the deficit to be cut in half or cut by a third in, in four years, you know, you're going to be disappointed. But if you, want a country, if you want to see a country that has almost, you know, 3.5% 3 GDP and a stock market that's remaining at these levels, I think you might not be disappointed. Right. And I, I think your, your point is, is well taken. And I, I'll let you go with one last question, because this is a question I think most people don't fully appreciate. But you, in, in your position, what you're seeing both at CNBC and, and, and just from the financial perspective, the economic perspective, political perspective, how important is perception? Right. How important is a feeling like it's going to be better? And is that really what was going on last night? It was this sense of 
daddy's home or mommy's home you know mm. th- your parents in the house and we got this so like you know when i was a kid growing up i remember when you know whenever i would be in the back seat of a car right and, and whenever we got lost i just looked over to the front right my mom or dad was driving and if it looked like they knew where they were going i was like okay i just go back to do what i was doing in the back seat but if it looked like they were nervous i was like uh-oh am i gonna we're we gonna get to alive right is is what last night really was after you pull away all the policy and all the stuff it is was last night just his way of saying someone's behind the wheel we're going somewhere it's not all fragmented stay along for the ride yeah 100% i mean perception is reality in politics you know i feel sorry for my accountant friends and my deep dive lawyer friends who are convinced that what the the balance sheets say and the statistics say are the most important thing when it comes to politics it it's it's really not I mean, just think about the way that the Democrats were peddling Hillary Clinton as a candidate. They kept saying this crazy line over and over again. She's the most qualified to run. It's an insanely stupid thing to say in politics. We don't, we don't, it's like voting for, it's like choosing your wife based on some list of qualifications. That's not how it goes. It's an emotional thing like you were describing with the backseat metaphor. It's a feeling that the country has. Ronald Reagan was the king of this. FDR was a tremendous king of this, you know, motivating the country to get out of the Depression and the war, and then Ronald Reagan right. getting us out of our malaise and to win the Cold War. This is a huge part of what politics is. It is so much about perception, and he did seem incredibly presidential and incredibly common sense-like last night. I mean, everything he right. said out of his mouth is something that I think that the polls show Great. really we, we gotta go to strongly break. support. Jake, thanks so much for joining yeah. us. We've got to jump to a break right now. Always great to have you on. Continued your great work. Check him out. Jake Novak. Google him. Uh, I'll, I'll tweet out his stuff today. This is Charlie Harari, and this is the Blaze Radio Network. This is the Buck Sexton Show. On the Blaze Radio Network. Sexton. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Buck Sexton Show. Charlie Rar here filling in for Buck. Hope everyone's well. Just spoke with Jake Novak um, and his work and how he was able to predict what Donald Trump was going to do and how the future is going to be looking like under the Trump administration. And I think his conclusions about how people feel about the political class is something that a lot of people have been waiting for someone to be their representative on. But what I really want to transition and go into hour two with is this idea of this perception shaping reality. So much of how the world works is outside the spreadsheets. It's outside the bottom lines. It's outside the the, politi- the, pol- the politics and the, the policy papers. It's perception. It's how you see the world. Last night's speech was not just about his policies. Last night's speech was about perception. He needed for the world to hear him on the greatest stage and feel comfortable and confident. We come back in hour two. We're going to actually speak about specific moments of that speech and how it evoked certain of our emotions for a reason. It was done very deliberately. Check it out. This is Charlie Harari filling in for Buck Sexton, and you're listening to Blaze Radio Network. We'll be right back. Buck Sexton Show. Only on the Blaze Radio Network. 